Hello friends, welcome to Into the Greenwood Splitting Arrows, where we look at Robin Hood films from over the past hundred years and consider how our adaptations of the character have changed. Tonight we're watching The Bandit of Sherwood from 1946, a film starring Cornell Wilde as the son of Robin Hood. There will be several films over the course of our Splitting Arrows that follow that theme, an older Robin Hood and his child who has taken up his reins in some way. This is also the first of the films that I have not seen previously myself. Before we get into the episode proper, though, there's a few notes that I think we need to cover first. Starting with a very brief historical lesson. The film's plot centers around the Magna Carta, otherwise known as the Great Charter, a document originally signed and sealed by King John in the year 1215 in order to stave off war with rebellious barons who were resenting the power and authority of the king at a time when the king was, well, let's say, abusing that power and authority to help make up for costly wars with the king of France and with his contestations with the church. Now, the Magna Carta didn't succeed in preventing a war, but it was an important moment in legal history. It helped establish limits on the power of the monarchy. And while some of the language may have helped inspire future documents, and mentions things such as all free men being guaranteed trial, it's really primarily based around securing the rights and privileges of the barons, who were the ones pressuring John to sign this, and who were concerned for themselves. The common people of England benefited very little directly from this, especially the serfs and villains, those who would not be considered free men. Now, the film takes place shortly after the death of King John, when his son, a young Henry III, is king with William Marshall as his regent. In the film, William Marshall is attempting to revoke the Magna Carta in some sort of strange power grab that's not really quite very well explained. In reality, William Marshall helped reissue the Magna Carta in 1216 and again in 1217 in a move to help cement the young king's power by getting the barons to come to his side as opposed to that of the French king who was making a play on England at the time. The other note I feel forced to mention before the episode properly begins is a content warning. One of the first scenes in the movie it includes a sexual assault from our main character and at least a hint at potential attempted rape. It's problematic to say the very least, and we are forced to discuss it with at least a little bit of length in the episode. And I want to make something very clear. Not only do we here at Into the Greenwood find that sort of behavior entirely inappropriate. We're also not willing to let creators off the hook for the this sort of portrayal in past works either. There's no standard of the time that excuses the sort of behavior that is presented in this film. As evidence of that, I'm going to share a brief section from the work Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, a medieval poem that was originally composed around the same time as the early medieval Robin Hood ballads. It is fairly contemporaneous and reflects some of the attitudes that existed during that time in the late Middle Ages. The section I'm going to read is from the translation by J.R.R. Tolkien into modern idiom, which would have been a work that he had been focusing on roughly around the same time as this movie was being made in the 1940s. So whether we're talking about the standards of today 
in the year 2021, when this podcast is being recorded, the standards of 1940s, when the movie was made, or the late Middle Ages. There is never any sort of excuse for the sort of behavior that is portrayed in this film. And yet, as to kisses, she quoth, this counsel I gave you, wherever favor is found, defer not to claim them. That becomes all who care for courteous manners. Take back, said the true knight, that teaching, my dear, for that I dared not do, for dread of refusal. Were I rebuffed, I should be to blame for so bold an offer. Ma fay, said the fair lady, you may not be refused. You are stout enough to constrain one by strength if you like, if any were so ill-bred as to answer you nay. Indeed, by God, quoth Gwaine, you graciously speak, but force finds no favor among the folk where I dwell, and any gift not given gladly and freely. And now I present Into the Greenwood, Episode 7, Splitting Arrows, The Bandit of Sherwood. As we got a whole movie to watch, we should probably get on with this. Indeed. Well, welcome to another episode of Splitting Arrows, where tonight we are going to view 1946's The Bandit of Sherwood, the first film that is an entry in what I'm considering a subgenre of the child of Robin Hood films. Joining me here, I have yet again, Richard Hopkins Lutz, or Rick, and Annie Jacobson. How are you both doing tonight? I'm good, thank you for having me. My I'm... first podcast. I'm doing pretty good. Looking forward to another Robin Hood movie. Or son of Robin Hood movie. Yes. And speaking of it being the son of Robin Hood, it is based on a 1941 novel titled The Son of Robin Hood by Paul Castellan. It was made because producer Clifford Sanforth, uh, film producer Clifford Sanforth, was watching... 1938's The Adventures of Robin Hood with his son. Uh, his son, presumably, supposedly, rumoredly, asked, did Robin Hood ever have a son? And uh, Sanforth said, you know, I don't know, but I bet there's money there. So he <laughs> found this novel that had come out just a few years before, acquired the film rights, and brought it to Columbia Pictures, and they were ready to move forward with this. But MGM was at that time trying to make a film based on an operetta called Robin Hood. And so they had a film with the name Robin Hood in the title in its work, in the works. And so rather than have a legal battle about being able to use just the name Robin Hood, Columbia ditched the son of Robin Hood as the title and went with the bandit of Sherwood Forest. All right. It was written by Wilfred H. Pittet, Melvin Levy, and the novels writer, Paul Castellan. It was directed by Henry uh, Levine and George Sherman. It stars Cornell Wilde as Robert of Nottingham, the titular bandit, supposed son. It has Anita Luis as Lady Catherine Maitland. According to some Hollywood legend, she was the one originally cast to play Maid Marian in the 1938 Adventures of Robin Hood until the studio decided that Olivia de Havilland would be a better choice based on her previous success in films with Errol Flynn. This movie also has Jill Esmond as the Queen Mother, Edgar Buchanan as Friar Tuck, Henry Daniel as William of Pembroke, George McReady as Fitzherbert, Russell Hicks as Robin Hood, the father, 
Earl of Huntington. Uh, we also have John Abbott as Will Scarlet, Lloyd Corrigan as the Sheriff of Nottingham, Eva Moore as Mother Meg, Ray Teal as Little John, Leslie Dennison as Alan Adale, Ian Wolfe as Lord Mortimer, and Maurice Talzin as King Henry III. Now, I am not a huge movie buff. A few of those names sound vaguely familiar to me, like Russell Hicks and Ian Wolfe, but I can't think of any of these actors, anything else I've seen with them. I know Cornell Wilde played Lancelot in The Sword of Lancelot 13 years after this, but I'm really not familiar with his work or the work of anybody else associated with this movie. How about you? No, I have heard any of, of those names I've ring heard. a bell for you? I've no, I've seen Jill Esmond in something. Ah, uh, it's gonna bug me. Well, I have IMDb pulled up right now. Yeah, I'm looking at her. Uh, at her film. I haven't heard of any of them. Uh, she played uh, Queen Eleanor in a couple of episodes of the Adventures of Robin Hood television series from the 1950s. The one that starred Richard Green. I've seen those episodes. They're amazing. There you go. So, so apparently she's, she's, she's well qualified. Yes. <laughs> so given that this is a lesser known movie, I'm pretty sure none of us have seen this one before. I have not. Oh, the skin game. Hitchcock's the skin game. That's what I've seen her in. Um, she just oh, looked familiar. Anyway, <laughs> I've never seen this movie before. I've seen very few Cornell Wilde movies, too. Yeah, so I'm not sure what to expect here. Um, I saw Henry III is our king, so we're, we're past the storyline with Richard and John, uh, as, as is only reasonable. So we've apparently moved on to John's son, Henry. Well, and according to uh, Wikipedia, the film did very did pretty well at the box office in the U.S. So it was popular at the time that it was made. Mm-hmm. I, I read a few reviews. They were not especially flattering, but they said it was a decent sort of what we would call nowadays a popcorn flick. You know, it had some good action. They, I think one of them even said decent enough in a turn off your brain sort of way. Some of my favorite movies are decent enough in a turn off your brain sort of way. I love that that was this the thing in the 40s too. Like, I don't want to go into the movies and like have to think. I just want to watch the people swashbuckle. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, I always find it when people like poo-poo on a popcorn flick. Like, you know what, Martin Scorsese bashed like the, the MCU movies. Who cares? They're fun. Oh, yeah, they're not like high the art. What, Martin Scorsese, you don't like fun? Yeah, seriously. I mean, that's um, the thing. It's just like a, a movie doesn't have to be high art to be enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sort of, with all that in mind, I'm not expecting to be heavily moved in any particular way, but I'm expecting it to be a fun film and I'm expecting it to be something new and different because it's not going to just be a retelling of the Robin Hood story. It's going to be a story of something or other that happens afterwards. So there's going to be a brief musical interlude. We're going to pause the recording, watch the film. Then we will come back, resume recording, and give everyone our reactions to it. All right. Excellent. All right. Pop your popcorn, everyone. All right, dead. Okay, so that was a a movie. We're we're back from watching 1946's The Bandit of Sherwood, who I don't think at any point was a bandit. No, no, not really. No, not no, really. I mean, I mean, he did kill a couple people. Well, kind of at the beginning when he was riding around, s- smashing 
copies of the regent's decree about <laughs> repealing the magna carta that was my favorite part when he was just like treachery and he runs <laughs> and grabs the thing out of his hand <laughs> he also didn't spend a whole lot of time in sherwood forest they made it clear that he's not from sherwood forest because all of the merry men are like who the heck is this guy and we didn't spend a lot of time in sherwood forest and what time we spent wasn't much of a forest. They looked like no. they were just kind of in they were well, like Hollywood sets, but it, it was all like, like sparse park ground with like <laughs> five trees. Bushes. <laughs> Bushes that came up to their knees. Ooh, that movie. So here's the thing. I, the, the basic plot of the movie, I enjoyed. I genuinely liked the plot of the movie. I thought that it was pretty good the first 15 20 minutes are full of political intrigue you got a lot of uh robin the original robin going around never mind he's a lord riding around with no retinue but man eh, well whatever <laughs> i did not love the plot of the movie because it felt just like a rerun of what you would expect of a typical robin hood plot we have the the regent being the exact same as Prince John as the regent. The king that they're trying to reinstall on the throne isn't the king who's away at the Crusades. Instead, it's a young Henry III who's just a boy. But it's that same basic idea of like, oh, there's a good king we want to put on the throne and foil the plots of the evil regent who's trying to steal his power. It felt well, too much like an also ran to me. Well, I mean, it is. I, I'm saying I didn't hate it. I, I'm saying I thought it was fine and serviceable. I didn't say it was, you know. Yes, I would say I would say serviceable is a good service. description of the plot of that movie. I was yeah. just, I think my, I was just hoping for something different. I was hoping to see a different take in some way, and seeing it be just a weaker version of the story we've seen before was a, a decided disappointment. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, Cornell West is a is a bargain bin. Errol Cornell Wild. <laughs> Cornell Wild, sorry. Cornell Wild is a bargain bin. Errol Flynn. I think uh, I actually think he's more of a bargain bin. Douglas Fairbanks because he had that kind of athleticism, but not the acting chops and presence. He had a nice ass. Can I say that on your podcast? Yes. Yes. <laughs> he well, he like I don't know. He seemed more like kind of an overgrown twelve-year-old most of the time. Mm-hmm. He kind of constantly had this slightly mis- slightly mischievous air to him, but it grew. Well, th- he wasn't. He wasn't being mischievous. He was just being. <laughs> yeah, that's the thing. Is like he's acting like he's being mischievous. Like I said, it's like a twelve-year-old who like does a dick move, but so then acts like, like ah, just a prank, bro. So he starts off, he sexually assaults Lady Catherine. And yeah. she's like, I'm into it, but kind of not. And, and then and then he pretends he doesn't tell anybody who he is. And they're like, well, who the f*** are you coming into our forest? And he's like, ah, you'll never guess. <laughs> well, and, and to be clear, so for the listeners here, we're not exaggerating. We say sexually assault. Like he literally yeah. was about to throw her on the ground and have his way with her because he thought she was rando lone scullery maid. Yeah, he makes her her slip when she's on a log and catches her. And then when he puts her down, he doesn't let go, even though she's clearly trying to get away. He says, I think you owe me for having caught you. And then kisses her, just immediately full on kisses her, and then comments on how he could have his way with her. And starts to push her to the ground. Like he grabs her shoulder and is like starting. I mean, it is from a modern standpoint, and even should have been back in the 40s, a fight, kind of a disturbing thing. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah, it was pretty bad. <laughs> it it was it was extremely bad. That for when you hit the low points, I think that might be my <laughs> low point of the movie. It has to be. There, there's almost no way to get lower than that. I mean, it's a movie with plenty of low points, 
but that one really takes it there. I mean, you got you gotta love the way they always turn it around and you sexually assault her, then she's like, Hey, <laughs> you're kind of cute. Like, yeah. I kind of like that. Well, <laughs> it's that 1940s, you know, women want to be dominated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was just, she was just wanted to watch her ankles in the yeah. pod and he was all up in her business. And in the, the second scene they have together, she says, as, as Rick was saying, oh, I wouldn't have mind, minded if you went further. And then in their third scene, they both profess their love for one another. <laughs> Seriously. Well, it's, it's like there's whirlwind romances and then there's, Here's a random person you met and had a few dozen words with. Suddenly you're madly in love with one another. She must have been just really into his like teeny tiny thin mustache that he had. Well, she could have been into his ass like you were or his his pretty muscular arms. Dude was swole. He had nice arms. He had nice was arms. Swole. I like that he was swole and they still padded his shoulders. That was weird. Like he oh, looked like he was wearing football gear. Can we talk about the costumes? Yeah, sure. we definitely need to talk about the costumes yes. because it blew my mind how heavily they recycled wardrobe from the 1938 adventures of Robin Hood. Our primary villain, William Earl of Pembroke, the regent, who historically would have been William Marshall, recorded as, as being one of the greatest knights in all of history and who in reality would have been about 70 years old when the movie supposedly takes place. Uh, it was, a, it was very loyal to the king. Oh, yeah. Extremely yeah. loyal to the king. Minor, minor yeah. historical. I know, right? We already covered the <laughs> turn off your brain part with this film. God, you gotta. <laughs> and But he's got like three or four costumes that he wears, and one is one of Prince John's costumes from the 38 film, and one is one of Sir Guy of Gisborne's costumes from the 38 film. And he's trying to play both roles, essentially. He's being the Prince John of this movie and the Sir Guy of Gisborne of this movie. And is not as good as... He is He is a, he is a discount aisle Basil Rathbone at best. And uh, is, yeah. uh, he wasn't, oh gods, oh gods, why are you so terrible? He just wasn't up to the part, you know, up was, to was, kind of what we wanted them to be. He was phoning it in. <laughs> he was just getting it. He was just getting a paycheck from MGM or 20th Century Fox or whomever. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to some, some more into how he was not Basil Rathbone later. But uh, Annie, you wanted to talk more about the costumes? Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was all about Robert's sparkly tunic <laughs> because that was amazing. And he should have kept that on the whole end scene. He was quite bedazzled. It was so bedazzled. It was all the all the sleeves and the hem. It just had, I don't know where they found like sparkly gems in 12th century, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. The, in the 1216 sequence were all the rage. True. True. Well, and then my my other favorite part with the costumes was when Lady Catherine and the Queen were sneaking out, pretending to be scullery maids, but waving their cloaks like as wide and as distracting as possible. That's how scullery maids walk. (laughs) There wasn't even any attempt to dirty up their costumes, make them (laughs) ragged. I never never would have guessed that they were supposed to be serving women of any stripe, much less scullery maids, unless the actors had not told us so. Right. And the whole scullery maids in the forest. Right. (laughs) Oh, gosh. It was not the best. No. The Merry Men looked all right. Oh, another note on the costuming. One of my first notes I wrote down was no lack of green tights. That's yes. true. The so Mary many men, green tights. The Merry Men were fully, fully tighted. <laughs> I will say one of my favorite moments in the movie was the bit with the gate when they were escaping. <laughs> and <laughs> that was just, pretty. The guard is just like, hey, I can't open this. And the other guard is like, okay, I'll open it for you. And they sneak out behind his back. And then he's like, okay, well, I guess I'll just close this now. 
Right? And keep in mind, it's the middle of the night. Why is he even opening it? It made no sense. Now, now to be fair, as far as we can tell, all of these workers were just blue collar. If they were lucky, they were making minimum wage. <laughs> you know, just they didn't care. They weren't paid enough to even scream when they were getting killed. <laughs> Like, seriously, like three guards in a row get killed. None of them scream. Not a peep. They were just like, take me now. I'm ready to be done with this. Yeah, uh, oh, God. Give me the sweet release of death. <laughs> I mean, I was pretty ready to be done with the movie by that point, too. Yeah. It was mercifully short, hour and 27 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh. And then, then they had... So they had a plan of the castle, which they said, and they laid out on the table and they all looked at it together. But then they didn't realize that they were going to be able to see the king escaping down the rope from the regent's room. (laughs) That bothered me. I was like, I feel like you should have known that. (laughs) Yeah, this... Turning off the brain. (laughs) (laughs) This was not a movie where, like, I'm going to beg for my hour and a half back, but... it was. I was entertained, for sure. Yeah, I was entertained. I was... Well, like, so, for instance, I actually... I enjoyed Russell Hicks as Robin. Yeah, he wasn't uh, bad. Hood, Earl of Huntington. Yeah. I thought he was... Like, his part of the movie was actually... Like, he was solid. I was like, that's the part of the movie... Like I said, like, the first 15, 20 minutes of the movie, that was actually... That was pretty good. I enjoyed I, it. I was pretty happy with just about all of our classic Merry Men. They felt like nice, solid, iconic versions of themselves. I liked the Friar Tuck a good amount. Yeah, they they felt like who they were all supposed to be. And it really worked. They, and they had a good few moments of banter here and there. Actually, I will say it was actually one of the better portrayals of Alan Adele mm. um, that I've seen. Because he's, and, and that's, it's kind of unfair because he's a character who doesn't actually get developed out or really portrayed even in some of the some of the Robin Hood movies. But he was he was an integral part of uh, the the whole plot to save the king and everything. And he did a whole espionage thing, and it was good. He, like he, was, he did do an espionage. He did do an espionage. <laughs> I'm doing an espionage. <laughs> and then it got messed up when they lowered the king out the window and everybody could see <laughs> i just uh, like how how doesn't matter if you're in today time or the 12th century rich people are all assholes because all of those guys in the beginning were just like okay i guess you're just gonna revoke magna carta cool right? here have all my men <laughs> and, and robin was the only one to be like hey you can't do that and then they just banished him there was one dude who was kind of like uh can i think about this and they're like no <laughs> <laughs> that's right <laughs> that was another weird thing choosing the magna carta as a plot point um, and the idea of revoking it to take away liberty from the people and their power to choose, because that's definitely not what the Magna Carta does. Whoever wrote that bit has just never read the Magna Carta. Just like, that was the thing. It like gave people rights, right? Yeah, let's yeah. make them take that away. Which which people did it give rights to? Oh, the barons. Those yeah. are the ones that were given rights by the Magna Carta, who in this movie are the ones voting to revoke it. <laughs> I feel like I feel like it was like an American writer that was like, what reference point can we use that like Americans will understand? Like, okay, maybe 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 Magna Carta is like the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> you know, I remember being taught in school that the Magna Carta was sort of this foundational document that inspired the U.S. Declaration of Independence right. and Constitution. That it was part of this chain of liberty that existed. And I guess somebody got that same crappy uh, public school education <laughs> and just ran with it. Yeah, probably. I mean, it it was a strange plot point. <laughs> but this is a movie of strange plot points. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot oh, of them. Yeah. Like the like the old woman in the hut. <laughs> yeah, 
I was, Mother Meg? Was I it? was expecting to see her again. I was sad she didn't come back. Right? I like, was I love when she stuck out her tongue at Robert. <laughs> she, yeah, was she, like, was, <laughs> she was just comedic, kind of comedic interlude. Mm-hmm. Man, this movie just I went into it expecting slightly more. <laughs> like I wasn't expecting much. But like Annie, I, I at least had had general fun, but I feel like I feel like I laughed a lot and it wasn't a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. You were watching, cracking up. I was watching you. Yeah, watching your reactions was definitely the best part of the movie. <laughs> oh man. Oh my god, and the weird the weird framing of the shots. Like at the beginning when they're having that discussion and the, the guy's head only comes up to the half part of the screen and the, <laughs> and the upper half of the screen is all just the wall. <laughs> it was so weird. Yeah, it, it just, it's, it's a, I can't even say it's flawed because flawed would imply that there's, that it's just a minor thing, but it's, it's just, the movie just. It wallows in it. mediocrity. Yes, yes, it wallows in mediocrity. I believe I used mediocre to reference somebody in this movie. So let's go ahead and and jump into our list of questions. Uh, We covered a lot uh, in terms of our basic expectations and the depictions of the main characters. And of the familiar main characters, Robin Hood and his band have fared pretty well. How about... Mm -hmm most impressive feat of archery and we did have at least a little bit of archery in this film so i will say that i'm pretty sure they hired a trick archer for the scene in the forest where they're trying to establish robert as an archer and they have a thing where they're shooting torches that are thrown Mm -hmm. fiery brand firing arrows they were arrows arrows. i thought they were were just fiery brands but I mean, assuming that they actually did use a trick archer for that, that was actually pretty impressive. Well, so as a matter of fact, not only did they use a trick archer, they used the trick archer, uh, Howard Hill. Oh, in- Howard Hill! Howard Hill was credited in this movie as technical advisor, and who did all the real shots. Yes, uh, and presumably helped train Cornell Wilde and others to at least not look like idiots when they're holding the bows. I mean, um, yeah. I feel like they all, they all kind of looked like idiots holding the bows. Well, okay, they just looked like idiots, but it wasn't the bows that made them look like idiots. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's fair. That's fair. I preferred, personally, how hard Will Scarlet could throw the flaming arrow <laughs> so that Robert could hit it. <laughs> He was just literally throwing arrows and they were going through the air as though they'd been shot from above. Yeah, it's true. Clearly there was one person off screen who fired an arrow in the air and then also off screen, Howard Hill was firing his arrows to hit them in mid-flight. Well, it was a good thing that they had archers because nobody knew how to hold a sword. That's true. The sword fighting was super weird. We'll get to that, I think, a little bit later also. Next question. What was the best example of swashbuckling action? Ugh. Probably the last sword fight, because that was mostly the only sword fighting. (laughs) Yeah, I don't have an answer for this one, because there was nothing that jumped out and impressed me. We did have that sword fight at the end, but I couldn't bring myself to even write that one down because uh, yeah. there's so much cribbing off of the iconic fight between Basil Rathbone and Errol Flynn from the 38 film, even to the point of them doing like the shadows on the wall at one yeah. point. Yeah, I saw that. I noticed that. It's Well, and here's the thing is, is you've got Cornell Wilde there and a really energetic stunt guy. Yeah, exactly. Part of what makes the 38 fight scene works so well is that that is Errol Flynn and that is Basil Rathbone and these two good actors who are in these roles where there is so much emotion and tension clearly on display in their faces, in their every movement is part of what makes that work so well. 
And when you're having a stunt double doing all of the fighting, so everything is filmed, so it's him from the back or far or distant shots, you're yeah. obviously not going to get that same effect. So our one like big sword fight in the film was a huge just disappointment. Yeah. I couldn't get over the fact that whatever the regent dude's name was, was looked like a discount Vincent Price. <laughs> <laughs> he did. That is uh, Henry Daniel, who Henry, uh, Daniel. I, I, Henry Daniel is the name of the actor. I should have recognized that name earlier when we were going over the cast list because he also plays pretty much the exact same character, Lord Wolfingham, in the movie The Seahawk. And that was one of those Errol Flynn swashbucklers that I watched a million times as a kid. And he was playing, as I said, the exact same character, (laughs) this conniving nobleman who is trying to position himself to become the ruler of England. Well, and didn't you say, like, when we were watching that they tried to train that guy to, like, be a sword fighter and he was so bad that the... Yeah, the the stunt coordinator for the Seahawks said that he was an absolute disaster to work with, which is probably why they just didn't even try with him in this movie. Right, it was just so obviously a stunt double. (laughs) Yeah. Part of it was is Wild just couldn't sell it. He's overall, he just isn't as charismatic as the part really needed. No. Just not. I mean, to be fair to everybody else in that movie, barely anybody was selling it. <laughs> this is true. Yeah. <laughs> this movie only, felt like a money grab. The only one that was selling it was the guy that was playing actual Robin Hood. <laughs> yeah, right. I would say him and and like a couple of the other Merriman actors, Alan and Dale, Prior Tuck. Prior Tuck was definitely trying to sell it. That guy, yeah. he, he was going all in. Well, the Queen actually did a pretty good job. Yeah. Especially when she was crying up against the wall with her hand dramatically placed. That well, collie that was that collie dog that was whimpering next to the young king. Oh, yeah. that, that dog had more acting chops than most of the cast. And I well, was... and I, I have to say the the actress who played Lady Catherine, she was trying to have chemistry. Trying. <laughs> it was, like seriously, Wild is so wooden. And but Again, he has that kind of, ah, ha, 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 look at me. I'm just like, oh, God. I didn't actually hate him, but, man, I just wanted to slap him a couple times. He wasn't any more, I don't think he was any more or less likable than the actual regent because they were both dicks the whole time. Right? <laughs> the villain was at least appropriately dickish. Yeah. Uh, including, including that <laughs> where he's telling the sheriff of Nottingham to murder young Henry III by pushing him out a window. Imagine he's standing in the window and you have your hand on his shoulder that he falls. <laughs> It'd be very dangerous, wouldn't it? <laughs> wink, that was, wink. That was so bizarre. I'm the villain in case you didn't know. <laughs> it's like, I, w- I want you to take care of him. What does that mean? You know, take care of... I mean, it was so, like... It was cartoonish. So I think we're going to have to give a a goose egg to examples of swashbuckling action. It just... It was lackluster. There was a a bit of sword play here and there. The one big fight scene that was a disappointment. Oh, talk about wittiest banter. You should should get a real woman to go. (laughs) He was all ready to dress up in a in a dress and pretend to be the prioress. I thought there was going to be some cross-dressing and I was disappointed. I agree. I was expecting that too. There's a scene in the movie where they're going to infiltrate the castle by impersonating a prioress who was traveling through the area. And it's just the merry men discussing this plan. It sounds like Will Scarlet is going to be disguising himself as the prioress. But then Lady Catherine has just said, no, no, let me go which didn't actually make a whole lot of sense, especially since this was the castle that she was from, so they would, in theory, recognize her. So a cross-dressing Will Scarlet would have actually been a better disguise than the lady. (laughs) Especially since she wasn't disguised at all. She was literally just wearing a black cloak. That's a disguise. (laughs) I mean, obviously, she's she's church people. 
<laughs> charge people. Yes, that's what they said. <laughs> <Whew>. <laughs> there were a few good lines in the movie, though. Yes. Do any of you have any nominations for wittiest bit of banter? I mean, my favorite moment was when the regent goes to Lady Cat, to no, to the queen. And he's like, we're taking your son away. And then from outside, you hear the boy say, mother, they're taking me away. <laughs> I mean, it was on point. <laughs> and then uh, you just get a shot of that oddly like old looking child <laughs> like getting dragged away. <laughs> I have no idea how old the actor was, but man, yeah, he kind of looked like he was in his 20s. He looked like a very, very short adult man. (laughs) Uh, He sure acted, uh, and and by acted, I mean, like, in terms of acting ability, like he was an (laughs) eight-year-old. It's fair. That was rough. (laughs) That was rough. Rick, did you have any nominations for Wittiest Bit of Banter? God, I can't really think of anything that I thought was especially witty. Not not really. I mean, most of it, it, some of it probably would have been witty if it had been delivered better. I had a hard time with it early in the film because there were a lot of lines that were Robert's flirting with Catherine or some of his banter with the Merry Men that came off like it was supposed to be clever and witty but was either creepy or insulting and (laughs) and juvenile in both ways. Yes, exactly. But there were were a few lines later that I did quite like. There was one line he had that I liked where he's locked up in the prison. He meets with the regent. The regent is going to duel him in three days rather than kill him right now. That was pretty good. Okay, I'll give you that. And... Lady Catherine from the other cell calls out, oh, are you all right? I heard the regent in there. You know, I was worried he was going to kill you now. And he responds with, no, no. He just decided that he wouldn't die today. <laughs> that line was pretty I liked good. When he, I liked when he slapped the jug out of his hand and it shattered on the floor. <laughs> so the... The actor, by the way, who played he- uh, King Henry, he actually only has like a few cut acting credits, but he was like Child? he was like four he was like fourteen fifteen at this at the time. I mean, I think that well, makes I- sense because I the historical Henry the Third would have been about nine at this time, and it felt like somebody older trying to play young. Yeah, yeah. Well, he certainly had his adult bone structure in his face already developed. <laughs> Young voice, though. Like, his voice yeah. hadn't quite dropped completely yet. <laughs> so boy. I had two other examples for, for good banter that I liked. Uh, one was when we just have the two guards who are the companions of the prioress sitting at the inn. And one of them just starts randomly talking about how he heard from a crusader about this animal called a camel. And he says, oh, yeah, it's true. They have this this beast in the the only lives in the Holy Land. It's called a camel. And it can drink enough ale to stay drunk for seven days. And the other guard just looks at him and says, well, what a beast can do, a man can do. And downs his tankard. (laughs) that was good that was good i like that scene my other nomination was when robin hood and the merry men capture one of the regent's guards they have him tied to a tree they're trying to get him to reveal some of the regent's plans robin intimidates him by shooting an arrow such that it lands like right next to the guard's head and friar tuck admonishes him he says robin and the guard says oh thank you holy friar and then friar tuck says in the old days you would have clipped his ear neatly yes and then yes and then he's like oh i'll try again and then the old man tied the tree is like no no i give up please don't clip my ear which is the worst form of torture apparently (laughs) 
Could the ears or not, I wouldn't want people shooting arrows at my head, even if it was Robin Hood. <laughs> the thing is, is like, yes, there are little tiny bits of Witty Banner, but very little from the actual main lead. Oh, yeah. The person you expect. You actually do. Now that I think about it, I will say that the little exchange he has with the with William of Pembroke in his cell, the whole thing about three days to live, you know, three days to, to like kill you and things like that. It was all right. And the, and the follow-up line with Catherine was okay. Yeah, it was good, but... Well, and, and just, Cornell Wilde just seemed like he was just... After he delivered every line, he, he kind of had this, like, smirk on his face, like, ha-ha, look, I delivered a line. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. <laughs> That's why I said, you know, he's kind of like a 12-year-old. Yeah. Where he's, he's yeah. expecting gratification or reward for having done a thing. <laughs> so next question who wins the merriest man award the character aside from robin hood that you would most want as a member of your outlaw gang and why i'm gonna say alan adale because he was competent he was good at his job he got shit done yeah alan adale have to go with that he infiltrates the castle he makes a map of the castle He's able to either befriend the guards and distract them or shank them in the back as needed. Yeah. He was, in fact, a D&D bard properly played. I can't <laughs> argue with that. I mean, I liked Will Scarlet because he was most down to cross-dress. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Annie, are we going to have to watch Priscilla, Queen of the Desert or... Uh... Yes. Wong Fu. Favorites. All-time favorites. So my old high school did a play this, this year called The True Story of Robin Hood. They did a, a filmed version of the play because of, of COVID and everything. They went to a private island off the coast of Florida where some rich guy had built a castle for himself. They got permission to film in this castle. So oh, they use this castle, they use this grounds, they filmed their their production there, and then they just put this up on the internet. Wow. And the whole premise of this was that Robin Hood didn't exist. It was just Maid Marian cross-dressing and ha- yeah. leading a double life. Oh, I can't be Robin Hood. I'm Maid Marian. You know who I am. Can and we, oh my God, please... The story narrator is, uh, I think, Alana Dale. It was a female Alana Dale who then cross-dresses and joins the Merry Men also. Oh my God, that's amazing. And Will Scarlet, she finds out during her time there, is also a woman dressed as a man. (laughs) Please tell me we can watch and review this one, because I want to. Yes. It was definitely better than this movie. This high school production directed and starring high schoolers. Yeah, I would I would solidly recommend it over this film. Uh, shout out to Buholtz High School Drama. Yes. Apparently. Awesome. I, like, I genuinely want to watch him. Yeah, that sounds really good. Will Scarlet gets a bit of a bonus. Friar Tuck wasn't bad. But I think overall, we're going to have to give the award to Alan Adele. This movie would have been much improved bringing Alan Hale back <laughs> as, as little John. Little John was kind of whatever. Oh, yeah, he was forgettable. Yeah, yeah. He picked a fight with Robert when Robert first showed up to Sherwood, or rather, Robert picked the fight with him. And then Friar Tuck interrupted that duel that they were about to have to then himself duel Robert instead. And Little John just kind of stood there. That was an attempt at witty banter when Robert was, you must be Little John because you're so big and your brain is so little. (laughs) Right. Again, just being a dick to people. Right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Yeah. Then he called Friar Tuck fat. Yeah. Yeah. Super fat. Multiple times. Yeah, you know, and and I think this is another one of these cases where they're trying to to crib from the 38 Adventures of Robin Hood, where there was this degree of banter between Friar Tuck and Little John, where 
little John would make fat jokes at Friar Tuck and Friar Tuck, Tuck would make stupid jokes about little John. But that was like a genuine banter back and forth between right. the two, as opposed to just this guy showing up and saying random mean things to people he doesn't know. Like, you're dumb and you're fat. <laughs> like, was basically how that conversation went. <laughs> seriously, you kind of expected him to just go, why are you so mad? It's just a prank, bro. It's a prank. It was just a joke. Why are you getting all upset? <laughs> Look, there's a camera. We're on YouTube. So, you know, it did have a little bit of that vibe. It had a lot of that. <laughs> that was his personality. Was exactly that dude bro prank show. Yeah. Like, look what I'm doing. Yeah, I hadn't thought oh about God. it that way, but you're not wrong. <laughs> so, whew, moving on. How robbed were the rich? On a scale of one to ten, how do you Zero. think um, Robin Hood, or his son Robert in this case, fared as a champion of the oppressed? Zero. Zero. <laughs> Nobody got robbed. All they were doing was reinforcing the the feudal hierarchy. Did did they interact with any peasants at any point? Um, Meg, Mother Meg. (laughs) Okay, who who they forced? Who they forced to put up uh, some noblemen or some noble women? Yes. Uh, Yeah. So um, I'll give it. I'll give it a one. In that, presumably buying into the premise of the movie the regent was going to be worse for the people of England in some way. And they were working to stop him, but uh, that was pretty nebulous at best. And there was no real evidence of how people were going to be oppressed by him. There was no evidence of them helping anybody. They did show at the beginning. Okay, so I will say at the beginning, when Robert is riding around the regent's guys uh he does rescue some peasants or presumably a peasant from like being hanged that's true and like rides off with him which was also a feat of archery which was also a feat of archery shooting the the rope Um, that he was going to be hanged by the peasants were very upset though they were very upset about the about the withdrawal of the magna carta and that's when he was like, tyranny, and he runs by and rips it tyranny. out of his hand. All right, I'll, I'll go ahead and give him a two. <laughs> oh, no, I'll stick with my, I'm upping my zero to a one. Yeah, it was, it was not, they were not, no. All right, so, whew, not so great there. That brings us to low points, which I think we've <laughs> covered pretty extensively. There is a whole lot um, I, I think what really just tops everything, though, is the quote-unquote romance between Lady Catherine and Robert. The, the, the introduction of Lady Catherine and Robert, that is the low point for me in a series of low points amongst many. And every interaction between the two of them was a low point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it didn't get better. It never got as bad as the opening <laughs> attempted rape and sexual assault, but it never got good in any form. No. No. It, good or believable or not cringy. <laughs> three, literally three conversations, and they're like, I love you. But it wasn't even like that. Lady Catherine was like, You're in love with me, aren't you? And he was like, Haha, yeah. and they were never never given anything to go off these weren't in-depth conversations they at no point during these conversations did they have any meaningful talk about each other they knew nothing about one another in any form so i think what it comes down to is that she had really sexy ankles and he had a really nice ass and they just, they bonded and they fell in love over their mutual adoration for each other's very specific body parts. Yeah, yeah. And then the film ends with another riff off of the 38 Adventures of Robin Hood with the king commanding the two of them to be wed, which is the same thing that happens with Olivia de Havilland and Errol Flynn. But there, 
it comes across as charming. The couple has developed a relationship over the course of the film. They seem genuinely joyous about the notion where in this version, it feels so weirdly out of place, so forced. It is made doubly weird by being commanded to do this by a supposed nine-year-old. Right. And also the way that he hesitated before saying that he loved her too. Yes, he was like, ha uh, yeah, let's get married. Like, look, I was just trying to get some, some, some yeah. <laughs> you really put me on the spot here king yeah man i, I look i i didn't want to put a ring on it i just i just there I, I just saved you from being jamie lannister out a window you yeah. <laughs> throw me a rope here <laughs> come on oh God, man be really, a bro i did really like her ombre dress at the end which seems like more than they were capable of in the middle ages i don't know much about medieval fashion but it was beautiful it was very sparkly and ombre all right definitely their relationship in particular how it begins is the low point of the film any high points anything good we want to end on i really liked robin hood he was really cool at the beginning although it was kind of glossed over like i'm an earl now where i used to be the champion of the peasant and now i'm a landowner that actor was good and i was like okay cool like we're gonna we're gonna be fighting some guys that are trying to revoke magna carta all right and then robert rolls it and it just fell apart yeah it's never a good sign when the film falls apart because the lead has entered it (laughs) (laughs) that's true yeah annie i i agree i i enjoyed the actual robin hood i would have watched a movie of like that dude and the other the other actors the merry men doing a thing of oh they have to pick up their bows again and fight tyranny yeah it seemed like there was some general camaraderie between robin hood and little john and will scarlet and friar tuck they had better chemistry than the main romance oh by yeah. far yeah 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 sure. no i i i enjoyed like you know i enjoyed that first 15 20 minutes and i enjoyed the parts with robin running around being old robin hood that was fun. Yeah, I mean, it is it is at least something to be able to say that the high point of a Robin Hood movie is Robin Hood. Even if he's not the main protagonist. Even if he's not the main protagonist. Oh, yeah. well, although, although, when Robin finally came in and saw his son being a dick to all his friends, he was like, ah, that's just my son. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, to be, I mean, to be fair, he came in while Robert was in the middle of the sword fight with Friar Tuck, not while Robert was just lobbing weird insults at everyone. And <laughs> that's true. Robin just introducing himself to people by getting into fights with them. That's normal. That's how he met <laughs> Friar Tuck and Little John. That's how he does. That that felt part that part felt pretty appropriate. Okay. I'll defer to your expertise on that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I laughed a lot, but it, again, I laughed a lot, but it was not a comedy. Yeah, there was, there was, yeah. That's my takeaway. So this is the third film in our Splitting Arrows series. Annie, you've not watched the other two, which would be the 1922 silent film with Douglas Fairbanks and the 1938 one that we've mentioned so many times with Errol Flynn. No, now I want to watch that one. Oh, oh, you should. It's excellent. It's like that's favorite favorite movie of all time. Pretty much. And this movie will in some ways kind of make more sense to you because mm. of how much it's trying to yeah. be a sequel to that film. You'll get and you'll get to see some of the best costumes reused too. Hey. And one of the best sword fights ever. Mm. Like just an excellent sword fight. You definitely need to watch it. It it is a fantastically good movie. At far superior. Like seriously, if you have a, a Saturday afternoon to waste, anybody who's listening to this and you're like, I'm gonna watch a Robin Hood movie, pick that one. Pick the adventures of Robin Hood. 
Do not watch the Bandit of Sherwood for us. <laughs> no, don't watch the Bandit of Sherwood. It is it is the dollar store version. Unless you want to do like a Mystery Science Theater 3000 with your friends. Yes. And we'll like, watch the Bandit of Sherwood for us. It's like the Asylum Films version. Yes. It's the Mockbuster version. Yeah. <laughs> this is one of those movies that definitely would have been improved by being on MST3K or being inebriated and watching it and doing your own. Yes. Yeah. Overall, an uninspired movie. Just not like I, I, I was I, I, I was expecting it to be more fun than it was, and it it just kind of flubbed. Yeah, I was expecting at least some better action. Mm-hmm. Or more action. It had so little. <laughs> Any action. There wasn't horses galloping in big packs. Yeah, seriously. The only thing I can say about the horses galloping is at least they kept the consistency across the screen. They didn't have any like <laughs> miss where it was like going one way than the other. So the editor was was doing their job. That's true. I you know the cinematography was weird. The directing was pretty bad. Yes can't fault the editing i think the editing was was as good as it could be no no real weird sound things the score was fine wasn't impressive but it was okay i don't even i don't even remember there being music (laughs) it did not have a uh a score that had like a catchy theme no it did have it did have one lute song though that's true. We did get like Alan Dale singing a song to some guards, and we heard more of that song than I was expecting, and it wasn't bad. Yeah, yeah, it was like going on so long that I was like, "Is there? Are they like saying important information in the lyrics?" And I was trying to listen real closely because it was going on nope, so nope. long. Got to remember to turn off the brain. <laughs> just, just distracting those guards long enough to shank him in the back. Well. Thanks for joining me again, Rick. Thanks for joining us, Annie. It was lots of fun. We'll have to bring you back again sometime. Yes, this was super fun. I had a blast. I would like one that hits more of the boxes, of the Robin Hood boxes. Yeah, not it? not one of the subgenre that involves his child. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, please have me back for uh, Prince of Thieves. I was going to say, that'd be the one. The next film on the docket is Prince of Thieves, but not the Kevin Costner one, the one that came out in 1948 that is based on the novel by Alexander Dumas. My thanks again to Richard Rick Hopkins Lutz and Annie Jacobson for joining me for that film that was a bit of a rough one. A lot of laughter, as you heard, but more at the film than with it, unfortunately. I certainly hope that our future presentations of The Child of Robin Hood will come off better than this one did. Our previous entry in Splitting Arrows, The Adventures of Robin Hood from 1938 with Errol Flynn, was certainly a high mark. This one was a low. I hope we don't go lower. If you enjoyed this episode and are willing to help out a little bit, you can find us on patreon.com slash intogreenwood or at ko-fi.com slash intogreenwood. Every little bit helps. We use the funds to pay for our web hosting fees, research material, and 10% of all the money we take in goes to charity. Right now, we're still supporting Trees, Water, and People that is all about sustainable methods for providing clean drinking water and healthy food for developing nations around the world. If you're interested in getting in touch, you can find us at Into Greenwood on various social media platforms such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us directly at into greenwood at gmail.com. Thank you for spending another hour in the greenwood.
Well, until next time, keep your bowstrings taut. I don't know. <laughs> yes. I, don't, I don't have a good outro. <laughs>